The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. And today I have Bob Fossen joining me from Dynata. He is the EVP of Business Strategy, and we have lots of topics to cover. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for making the time. So, Bob, usually I start off and ask my guests just to share a little bit of their background, their experience as to how they got to their place today in their career. Yeah, happy to share. It's not often when you find yourself in a situation where um, people are interested in what you have to say. So thank you for the opportunity and happy to share. So, you know, I have more of an academic background and I plan on getting a PhD. Okay. And I decided to take a break before that and work for a little bit. My wife was at that time finishing her degree. And so I walked in the door of a research company called Western Watts and applied for a sales job just to see what it was like. And, you know, that was a great experience. So, uh, you know, within a short period of time, we were starting a panel business, myself and a handful of others in that company. We grew that business. It merged later with SSI, which later merged with ResearchNow to, to become Dynata. And so over the years, I've had the opportunity to play a number of really interesting and fun roles in the company from you know, sales and operations roles to research science roles. But most of my career has been in building and maintaining our supply. That's really, it's unheard of to hear about somebody who started at one company and went through all the different phases of growth, expansion, to ultimately be in the same entity in somewhat and play so many different roles. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's been a really... Tremendous experience yeah. to just watch not only the industry change, but the company change and, you know, have opportunity to work with so many great colleagues over the years. I think uh, when we were at SampleCon, I know this is a follow up to the panel discussion. When we we're at SampleCon, I'm always surprised at how many people I've been able to work with over the years that are still in the industry yeah. in other places. And so it is a little unique and it's been a really fun ride from the starting point to now. Will you ever go back for your PhD? Do you think? <laughs> I, don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I made the right decision to take that break. Yeah, right. We were on a panel not too long ago at SampleCon talking about some of the challenges in the industry. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of hot topics as it relates to the sampling side of things and data that we capture. What do you see as kind of the biggest drivers that are impacting this segment of the industry? That's a great question. I think there's a few things that are driving this segment of the industry. One is the increasing quest to measure and manage data quality. The second, which is really inextricably tied to that, is user experience and how to better modernize 
what we do in the insights industry to better attract and retain participants. And then the third is finding and retaining the talent required to do these things. Yeah. I think the third is sometimes underestimated. That's a big part of some of the challenges we're dealing with and bringing in new talent and retaining talent in the industry. Yeah, certainly. And I think you know, the easy observation to make is there's a lot of investment in the space and there's a lot of new talent coming into the space, creating opportunity and innovation. And I think as at least for those of us who've done this for many years, it presents a unique opportunity to maybe change the way we think about how research is executed, learn from the new entrants in the space, but make sure we keep it tied to the methodology and approaches that have built the industry. And so I see tremendous opportunity for people inside the space to grow and do new things in addition to the innovation being driven by new capital and new entrants. Yeah, I completely agree. I almost liken it to what's happening in the marketing function where, you know, marketing traditionally was never really coupled with IT or technology, but the function has evolved to be, you know, you have to understand the principles of marketing, but you leverage technology to do your job better, faster, even maybe even more sophisticated, more targeted. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting just from an external validation standpoint. When I started my career in research, I never would have been invited to a career day at my kid's school. But it <laughs> seems with each passing year, there's more and more general interest in data, how it's collected, what's done with it, both in marketing departments, but also just fundamentally with what we do in the insights industry. Yeah. I had one of those career days. I actually did a taste test of different goldfish and asked <laughs> people questions. And they're like, that's what you do? And I'm like, at a very elemental level, yes. <laughs> it was kind of fun. Well, I know data quality and is a big topic. We've been dealing with it you know, throughout history of research, right? There's always that layer that we need to make sure that we're delivering quality that informs the insights and drives decisions. I love your analogy of the data markets have similar characteristics to a car lemon market. I'll say car because I actually was looking for the fruit lemon market, but share a little bit about that. I think it's a very interesting analogy. So happy to share. If you think about the market for used cars, you tend to kind of see a single price for each year make a model. And you tend to not see a lot of differentiation in terms of how cars are sold. And that's because it's really difficult for a buyer to evaluate the quality of a used car before a purchase. It's really difficult for a seller to credibly communicate quality before a sale. And so this lack of information or information asymmetry really drives a market where goods tend to be sold on the basis of average quality at an average market price. And in many lemon markets, you see either commodity pricing, think of things like sugar or grain, or you see kind of decreasing quality and decreasing prices as the market finds an equilibrium. I think this has happened in a lot of data markets. You know, it's interesting when I also think about the analogy to the car market, a lot of purchasing is somewhat led by the person who's selling the product, the car, right? Like I run to the hills when I go get aggressively sold to for a used car, but I might tend to give more time and patience to somebody 
I feel comfortable with, or I feel that I can associate trust with. So I think that's interesting. I think a lot of our business is related to relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And reputation is one of the primary ways that lemon markets become more efficient. And you see that in our industry, certainly. You see it, not to overuse the car example, but you see it with initial quality surveys. You see it with you know manufacturers, reputations, and even the reputations of you know individual sellers and dealers matter a lot. Yes, So I think there's three things, but first I want to answer a question maybe you haven't asked yet. And Sure, go ahead, go. I think there's been a real increase in data buyers' attempts to understand and manage quality. And I think that's a really good thing for the industry. I think that's actually an attempt to try and solve this lemon market dynamic. What are the elements of quality in your mind for our space? The way I think of quality is really three elements. One is identity validation. So that encompasses what's typically thought of as fraud prevention. It also you know, includes things like accurate profiling and qualification. There's in-survey behavior for survey research. So does the data collected through the survey accurately reflect what's being studied? Mm-hmm. And then third, and this is something that I think is really underappreciated, is what's the participation level and trust with the respondent? This is increasingly important as a component of data quality because consumers generally are becoming more wary of what's done with their personal data. And so the way we ask questions and the way we construct the surveys has a really big impact on how much data a respondent is willing to share. Yeah. And all three of those are, I mean, there's sub-segments to each of those drivers of quality it's not easy to define what good quality is across those three metrics. That's right. It isn't easy. And, you know, you can't really just look at one of them. So I was speaking with Imperium the other day, and they've begun sharing some of their industry-wide trends, even just on their website, on their data analytics page. And, you know, just at a very high level, looking at it, across the sample industry, about 17 percent of respondents fail an identity validation check. So that's a U.S. Mm -hmm. and Canada number. And so that means, you know, that could be at registration, that could be at another point in time. But across the industry, we have some technical failure about 17% of the time. Now, that's not entirely deterministic either. And, you know, assuming that sample providers aren't allowing those respondents to continue on into surveys using their in-survey quality score, you know, they're seeing about 9% of respondents, you know, not providing what we would consider quality data in the survey, whether that be, you know, straight lining, whether that be poor quality open ends. And so you kind of have this, you know, identity validation component where you want to make sure you're talking to people who are real validated. But then beyond that, once you know somebody's real, you know, 10% of people may not be paying attention at any given time. So technically, it's almost 25% of people who are attempting a survey or once they're in the survey, they might not be demonstrating quality behavior Yeah, or behavior that we would anticipate. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to break it down just a little bit Yeah, please. And again, I love that Imperium's begun sharing more of this data because it gives us a real insight into what's happening across the industry. So 
43%. So inside the survey, when they're measuring quality and, you know, their algorithms, you know, determining what's good and what's not good, 43% of the in-survey quality fails are related to straight lining. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at surveys at five or more grids, right. a sizable amount of people about one in 10 straight line more than 50% of them when shown five grids. So there's a lot of data, but it, the interesting part to me is there's nothing that drives disengagement more than grids. If anybody takes anything away from this discussion, <laughs> let's make sure we really take that in because researchers love grids. <laughs> yeah, well, they're very structured and they produce very structured data. And, and I think they have a place. I think you just you know, have to realize that it's not a question type that seems to be engaging and, you know, there may be a cost associated with using a lot of grids. I just want to clarify, are you saying five grids, meaning five questions that have five grid questions, like grids in them? Yeah, five plus grid questions in a survey. That's interesting and it's not surprising, right? Because when we think of ourselves doing, or I think myself doing a questionnaire with that many grids, you know, even my own personal behavior, unless I'm so passionate about the topic, I would tend to not pay attention as much. I don't know if I'd straight line, but I don't know if I'd pay attention as much. Yeah, I think that's at the root of it. And and frankly, so many of this is why transparency is so important, because so many of these things really shouldn't be a surprise. And, you know, one interesting thing at Dynata is we continue to operate call centers. And we have a Katie business. And, you know, one of the things we're constantly managing is open end quality. But the funny thing is, if you're doing a telephone interview with a respondent, the open end quality is no different, no better or worse than what gets typed in a box. And in fact, a big part of the interviewer's job is probing for more information. And so I think, you know, we tend to abstract when we design a questionnaire, when we think about research, we're we're so focused on the structure of the data we want to pull out of the questionnaire that sometimes we forget that it's actual people on the other side of the process. And the quality of the data may not be what we want if we don't take the simple steps to think through how we're putting these questionnaires in front of people. And Bob, what do you think the underlying driver for people, there is for people to take surveys. Why do you think they participate? So I do think there is an innate desire to share. Okay. And, you know, we see that manifested in research programs that are on kind of topics that people have a high level of interest in. And so you see a lot better engagement when the topic is uh, well-matched to the audience you're talking to. And that doesn't have to be a general population survey. You know, if you're talking to uh, window and door installers about windows and doors, you're probably going to have a high engagement yes. survey. And so I think, you know, if, if we as an industry really want to benefit from kind of people's innate desire to share, we have to do a better job of profiling and qualifying people into the survey. And so that requires a lot of work, I think, at the bidding stage and project setup and all of that work done up front, I think, produces much better data. I think the second reason people participate is for some sort of reward. And, you know, it's common. One of the fastest growing areas of supply across the industry, including at 
Dynate is integration with publishers, whether that be on the web or app or game publishers. And, you know, that works well because there's an in-context reward in exchange for data. And we see that as well in the difference between the panels we build in partnership with brands that have loyalty programs versus the panels we build through general purpose digital marketing to consumers. You see more of an attachment, higher rates of participation, higher rates of retention when there's something that is contextually relevant as a reward in exchange for the data. That makes sense. And also it's under their brand, right? It's under the brand affinity of whoever the publisher is. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's interesting. We had in our Australian business for a number of years, kind of an interesting experiment where for the My Opinions panel, over the course of, you know, over a decade, there was TV advertising for the panel brand. Wow. And, you know, obviously all kinds of other recruitment techniques as well. But, you know, turns out that the individuals who joined from the link in the link displayed on the TV ads tended to participate more, tended to have higher retention. And so you think, you know, even in just a very simplistic way, if we can get some trust, whether it be, you know, trust in a mobile game, trust in, a, you know, the news show that uh, has the TV advertisement, that it just produces a lot better outcome and gives these panelists, these consumers, a lot more momentum and a lot more motivation to share. Mm-hmm. To participate and share. That makes sense. I'm curious what your feelings are about recruitment these days and getting new panelists under in a you know, double opt-in panel. What are you seeing in terms of recruiting new panelists into taking surveys? Yeah. So, I mean, there's some very tactical things we could talk about in terms of how COVID-19 pandemic changed recruitment. I think advertising got more expensive. Every brand was trying to reach consumers in digital spaces. But I think, you know, simply put, the larger trend is I think we can still recruit people. Recruitment's never been really easy. Mm-hmm. I think our challenge as an industry is not as much in recruitment as it is in retention. And that's because consumers, you know, are much more careful about what they do with their data, how they share it. There's a, you know, we're so used to hearing about data breaches, they don't even make the news anymore. You know, we're, there's a lack of trust in some of the large companies like the Googles and Facebooks of the world who are in front of Congress, mm-hmm. you know, testifying about what they're doing with our data all the time. And I just think it's fostered a tremendous lack of trust. And so we can find and engage consumers through all kinds of mechanisms, but we have to follow through with a good experience if we want that engagement to stick and be productive. So I'm really excited that you know, you're bringing to the forefront user experience. I know we've talked about it. We've said things need to change. Seems like you're going deeper than that. And you're really exploring what are the drivers of user experience and and how do we all do better? I'd love to learn more about some of the research you guys and some of the findings that you guys have uncovered. Oh, perfect. This is a topic I'm passionate about. And I think you know, we should all become uh, user experience researchers to some degree because it really matters. And it matters for quality. It matters for the sustainability of what we all do for a living. There's a lot of research we're doing on our end about how to better engage respondents. And that's, you know, everything from what questions we ask in a join flow. How do we do profiling? How do we do audience targeting? And that all matters a tremendous amount 
How do we position rewards? How do we introduce more choice to the respondents so they can choose a five minute survey if they only have five minutes of time? Right. But the thing that's really underappreciated is how much of an impact the actual survey has and the way the research is operationalized. So if we look at a proprietary panelist who joined in the last 30 days, when they come in and attempt their first survey, 27% will leave that first survey and not come back on average. Now, that's not entirely surprising. Surveys aren't the most engaging things. And, you know, we can manage that number. However, if I look at the distribution by customers we work with at Dynata, large customers, individuals who, you know, would interact with 15,000 or more of these individuals within that 30-day period, there's a range of outcomes that goes from 65% of people would never come back after their first experience, all the way down to under 10%. And this doesn't correlate with the length of the surveys, the difficulty of the work, the incidents. In fact, some of the highest attrition or some of the researchers that drive the highest amounts of attrition have the simplest surveys. And some that drive the least amounts of attrition do the most complicated B2B work. And so this really has to do with how the survey is constructed, how we qualify the audience, and how people are treated inside the process. And if you dig into any of the kind of operational details, you can quickly identify what the points of friction might be. Some of them are lots of grid questions, just by way of example, and that's very congruent with you know the Imperium data we we uh, talked about earlier. So I think you know I look at user experience and say. As someone who works at Dynata, we have a tremendous amount of ground to cover to get better, and we're making big investments in that area. But as I think about the future of the industry, I suspect that myself and my peers across the industry are already and will become more sophisticated at rewarding good UX consumers of data, buyers of data. And I think those individual data buyers who drive poor UX will find it more and more difficult to fill their projects over time. I think we're already starting to see that across the different inventory or types of surveys that exist. Yeah. So that statistic of attrition, you know, even if it's a a shorter survey and you're still seeing high level of attrition, is that, what do you attribute that to? Is it truly that that short survey was not carefully designed or was it not targeted to the right person and we kind of pissed off the consumer? How do you rationalize that? Or maybe it's both. I think the only common thread I find, and you know, this is something we're spending a lot of time investigating, is the thoughtfulness in running the research. And the particulars in each case are different. So, you know, it could be quality management programs that don't make sense or great mistrust with a respondent. It could be, you know, the requirement for over-disclosure of personal data. You know, so a new panelist may be unwilling to provide an email address to a third party. And it could just be lots of grids or lots of open ends that a new panelist may not be attenuated to responding to. And so as we think about, you know, how to deal with this, my sense is most buyers of data would be happy to know where they sit on this continuum. And they'd be happy to engage in solving 
the issues that prevent their surveys from completing and prevent their surveys from being more attractive. And, you know, I'm hopeful that as we, and certainly with a handful of our customers at Dynata, they've made uh, huge strides forward together with us. And we've jointly done research on research, looking at, you know, what's the trade-off between a certain methodology that may be bad UX and good UX that may weaken that methodology. And I think these are just fascinating individual cases. And, you know, if, if I were entering the space today as, you know, a quantitatively minded researcher, I would find this very engaging because it's the bridge between the kind of user experience research that every direct-to-consumer brand does and bridging that to the methodology of driving better decisions, kind of the science of driving better decisions. And I think there's so much work to be done in this area. And, you know, I hope that as an industry, we're able to attract more intellectually curious, uh, curious. people to, to help us solve these problems together. I completely agree with you. I also think I'll add one more in terms of the curiosity or like new skills, and that is a bit more of digital marketing to our panelists, understanding that not everybody is the same. And some people will tolerate different experiences more than others. And some might want to engage more than others. And it's, it's forcing us to really think a little bit more from a segmentation perspective, from a yes, user experience perspective, but also, you know, we now have technology that allows us to fine tune our approaches to be tailored to the consumer within the survey instrument. Obviously that's critical, but also from how often they participate, how much are they willing to share and so on and so forth. Yeah. Just one, I mean, very small example, Seema is if we ask for a birth date in a panelist join flow, you know, 80% of people will drop out of that question. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And think of birth date as one of the key quality validation tools that is in use around the industry. And so I look at that and think, wow, as a researcher, do I really care what year or even day someone's born in? Or do I need to know, are they in their 20s or their 40s? Right. And so this is kind of a, an evolution of thinking around what's a consumer willing to disclose upfront and over time versus what do we really need? And then an evolution of the quality management tools that give us new ways to ensure that the data we're providing is of the highest quality. And, you know, I was having a conversation with a researcher in a government agency recently, and, you know, they were talking about the customer surveys they do or the user surveys they do. They have these consumers' records. They have their, you know, social security numbers. They know their birthday. And they say about 50% of people in the survey don't give an accurate address or don't give an accurate birthday because that's just what people have become attenuated to doing online. Yeah. And I think you've brought this up in other conversations we've had, even like for a lead magnet, right? If somebody's downloading a white paper, there's, you know, people are not willing to necessarily give accurate data to get the content. And so I think you're right. It's a bit of conditioning is for all of us in terms of building that trust and really knowing the threshold of what people are willing to share. I find kind of over and over again and where, and this kind of goes back to those three quality pillars we discussed earlier. There's the identity validation, you know, and maybe birthday is not a good way to do that any longer. Plus kind of the data quality metrics that we look at in the survey, they have to be looked at together because 
because, you know, oftentimes we'll see maybe uh, an identity validation failure with a panelist, but we can, you know, reach out and call them and validate that they are who they say they are, and yet their open end is still poor. Or And so it's this interesting, I think, multivariate analysis about what quality is and what's the difference between attention and designing a survey to drive more thoughtfulness and attention versus I think what we as an industry often look at too much, which are the technical solutions around validation, it's easy to look there because it's very measurable. It generates a lot of quantitative data. But I suspect an even bigger element of quality is this engagement piece. And certainly that's borne out in you know what we see in terms of attrition across our customer base at Dynata. Is it possible to solve for the lemon market from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, if you know, you're sitting in uh, your economics 10 class, your 101 class, the answer is always regulation. I think we've been trying that since the beginning of time. And, you know, while I appreciate and think it's positive to have things like the SMR 26 questions, I don't think we can regulate ourselves out of this. And, you know, the more time passes, the more I think finding ways to be significantly more transparent is the only way that we solve this dynamic. And that includes in our interactions with data buyers or customers being transparent about, you know, how their programs are performing relative to others. I think as a data supplier, it means being more transparent about our own quality metrics. And, you know, that's really the driving force for us investing in Imperium and them sharing more industry data. And so I think, you know, with sufficient transparency, a data buyer actually can start to determine quality and fit for purpose where it's very difficult today. And I certainly see the industry moving in that direction. I want to thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed our time together. Yeah. Thank you, Seema. This is wonderful. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.